0: Uh, My name is Daniel, uh, one of the pastors here. Welcome to Christ Central Church and we are going to jump straight into the series we've been in for the past few months in the book of Acts. Uh, And the reason is because I'm reading a long portion of scripture this morning. Uh, The whole chapter of Acts chapter 10, 48 verses. Uh, I know that our attention span uh, is often not quite long enough to pay attention for 48 verses, but I felt I must read this whole chapter because it is one long story, one long narrative. In fact, it continues into chapter 11, but I'm going to stop at the end of chapter 10. Uh, Mark Dever, in his uh, New Testament theology book, said that Acts chapter 10 is the most important chapter in the whole Bible. Now, at first, that may sound like an exaggeration, but I, I do think there's a lot of truth to that because I believe that Acts chapter 10 is a huge. Huge chapter for us to understand. So I'm going to ask you to stand as we uh, read God's Word, the whole chapter of Acts chapter 10. This is God's Word to us this morning. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who had attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetops about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing thing was taken up once into heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited the men to be his guest. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know. How unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter, He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. let's pray. God, I ask that you would come and you would, Holy Spirit, fall upon us. And give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see, hearts that are gripped by your truth. Remove me, Jesus be seen. Change us, we pray, by your word and by your spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Thanks for letting me read the whole chapter, uh, one long narrative. I think it's important for us to see it all goes together. I don't know if you know that moment in a story or in a movie where the plot is thickening, the drama is intensifying, and then there's this major revelation or a major event that changes everything. It's just a game changer, right? Or that moment when presidential candidates are announcing that they're running for election And then this one person announces, and everyone's wanting them to announce, and people think this is a game changer. Or that moment in a Super Bowl when it looks like the Seattle Seahawks are going to win, they're going to score a touchdown, and then this no-name cornerback for the New England Patriots intercepts the ball. Or that moment in the NCAA championship basketball game, and it looks like Wisconsin might run away with the game because Okafor and Winslow are in foul trouble on the bench And then Grayson Allen comes off the bench to score 16 points. Game changers. Game changers. This morning, we are looking at Acts chapter 10, and it is a game changer in the story of redemptive history. It is a game changer in that from hereafter, the landscape of salvation and the direction of God's kingdom and His mission become more clear. From here onward, the gospel's power and the aim of God's mission come into focus. We've seen it when we started the series in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. right? One of the central verses to this whole, uh, the whole book of Acts that set the trajectory. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what we're seeing is the ends of the earth being reached with the gospel here in Acts chapter 10. Game-changing moments are those times when you witness something and you say, "Uh uh-oh, here we go. It's on now. Game over. Right? We're about to win. Like when Sylvester Stallone in that old movie, Over the Top, which most of you probably have never seen, but I grew up on. Definitely did not win any awards, uh, but I grew up loving Over the Top. Sylvester Stallone, a, a truck driver who competes in arm wrestling competitions, and every time he competes, he would turn his hat backwards, and when he turned his hat backwards, it was over. He was going to win, right? Game over. The, the narrative in Acts chapter 10 is a game-changing moment. From here forward, the mission of God would go forward with power and with clarity in its purpose and its aim. We've been stating all along in our series that this book of Acts is not primarily about the Acts of the Apostles, as some of your Bibles may even have it titled. It is about the Acts of God. And it's not primarily about the mission of the church. It's about God's mission to the world, and God just happens to use the church. So I'm going to try to keep it simple this morning. I'm going to give two major points, seen in the two visions of Cornelius and Peter, Two things that I think this game changing moment reveals about God and his mission. In Cornelius, we see that God seeks us and he finds us. And in Peter, we see that God reconciles us to himself and to others. So we're going to look at this morning. So let's look at that. In Cornelius, we see that God seeks us and he finds us. Verse 1 starts with in Caesarea, which was a major city. It was a harbor city, so a lot of import-export trade going on. It was a a major city in which Cornelius lived. And let's look at this man Cornelius. He was a centurion of the Italian cohort, meaning that Cornelius was a soldier, a Roman soldier, and a centurion means that he was a commanding officer over around a hundred soldiers. He had been given authority over a hundred men in a major city. And to have arrived at this place, Cornelius would have been a man of social status, a man of education, a man well-liked, a man well-respected. And he was not only well-liked and respected, he would have had money. Cornelius was wealthy and influential and successful. But he was also more than just that. Cornelius was a good man. He was a really good man. Look at verse 2. gives us four traits of Cornelius. He was a devout man, feared God, gave alms generously, and prayed continually. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I don't think people would use those four traits to describe me. (laughs) But that's true of who Cornelius was, a man of influence, well-respected, and a really good man. I'm constantly amazed at how many good people there are in the city of Durham. I mean, I know people who care deeply about the environment, who are passionate for justice, people who love children who have no homes or who come from broken homes, people that serve the poor and the homeless. Durham is filled with really good people. Rachel and I live across from Seeds, which is a community garden just down the road, and we see hundreds if not thousands of people volunteer their time every year to help the community to give and to serve. But Cornelius reveals to us that being good is not enough. It's not enough to do more good than bad in your life. It's not enough to be involved in nonprofits or philanthropies or perhaps protest some injustice. The reality is that everyone's goodness is always mixed. And many people often do good for the wrong reasons. If you've ever done something, for someone, you wanted to serve, you wanted to give to them, but they never returned thanks? Or maybe people didn't take notice of what you did? Amen. Didn't you want to say, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't everyone realize what I have done? <laughs> JR's like, yes, I do all the time. <laughs> no, don't you want to say, realize what I've done for you? Give, give some thanks. And that's happened to me often. And what that reveals in my life is that I am being driven to serve or give for the sake of myself more than I am for the sake of the other person. See, Our good can be driven by selfish motives. You can serve and give for you. And doing good or being good is not enough. Cornelius needed more. We need more. See, Cornelius also reveals that being spiritual or religious is not enough. Verse 1, Cornelius feared God. Now, the Greek there for feared God, was, it's actually a terminology for a group of people called the God-fearers. That was a group of people that were Gentiles, like Cornelius was. And they had adopted some forms of Judaism, but they were not full converts to Judaism. They went in halfway in regards to their faith in God. So these God-fearers, they would worship in the synagogue, They liked the thought of there being one God, so monotheism. They would pray, they would give, but they were not all in. They were not full converts. They were unwilling to be circumcised, and uh, they were uncertain in some beliefs. See, Cornelius is not much different than many people today in our culture who like forms or practices of certain religions, Uh, When I read Steve Jobs' autobiography, Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, uh, I I did not know much about his spiritual beliefs, but I learned that Steve Jobs was given toward Eastern religions. He loved to meditate. He fasted multiple times a year. And and more and more people uh, in our day are liking kind of forms of meditation, Uh, I've even heard people refer to it as praying, and they like it because it gives this result of a kind of sense of peace uh, or clarity in thought. And I've talked to people, uh, not only in that regard, but who like to attend church, come to church because of how it makes us feel. I remember when I was at RUF, uh, at UNC Chapel Hill, with RUF at UNC, having a student who was struggling deeply with depression. She was having suicidal thoughts. And she told me, I'm just not sure about Jesus. I'm not sure if, I, if I'm really all in with the Jesus. But I like going to church. I like coming to RUF large group. It, just, it makes me feel good. And it, it gave her a sense of peace. But being spiritual and being religious is not enough. Cornelius needed more than his goodness, more than his halfway in spirituality. And so God appeared to him and revealed what God required and what was enough. God gave Cornelius a vision, told him to go bring Simon Peter to his house. Simon Peter had a vision, and God tells Peter uh, in verse 20 to go with these men whom Cornelius had sent. So Peter goes, and when Peter arrives before Cornelius and his household and relatives, Peter preaches the gospel in verses 34 to 43. And what did he preach? What gospel did he preach? He preached Jesus. Christ was put to death on a cross. But God raised Him up. And Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. And this judge only receives perfection. Jesus only receives those who are perfect and completely righteous. Not mostly good, not halfway spiritual, but completely perfect and completely righteous. And the only way for this to happen, verse 43... That everyone who believes in him, in Jesus, receives forgiveness through his name, the forgiveness of sins. So you must be all in for Jesus. Your whole life surrendered, your trust, your faith, and the one who lived a perfect life, died on our behalf, rose victorious, and offers forgiveness and His righteousness to those who trust Him and believe in Him. Peter's whole sermon is about Jesus. About Jesus. George Whitfield, a famous 18th century preacher, he would preach every sermon, and before getting into the pulpit, he would point his finger up into the air, pointing to Christ, and he would say, Sir, would we see Jesus? Would we see Jesus today? And I pray... Pray that's true in Christ Central church every Sunday. Because if you leave here and if you're a part of our community and you think you need to do more good or be more spiritual, shame on us. What we need, what everyone needs is Jesus. And to trust Christ and to be all in. For the center of Christianity is not doing good and being good or being more religious. The center of Christianity is a person, the Lord Jesus. And Cornelius needed to receive and believe Christ. And he would. He would receive and his whole household household would. The Holy Spirit would fall upon them signifying that they now were part of God's kingdom. So we've looked at this man, Cornelius, who would ultimately believe in Jesus. But how did that happen? How did it happen? It happened because the Lord sought out and rescued Cornelius. I said last week about Saul's conversion, but Luke, the author of Acts, makes sure that all of the conversions in Acts are attributed to God. God is the primary character in every conversion, and it's true here with Cornelius. God gives Cornelius a vision while he's praying. To send men to get Simon Peter. Simon Peter happens to be praying when he has a vision. Do you think God works through prayer? Do you think prayer is important? Simon Peter goes to Cornelius because God told him to. And then he preaches this gospel of Jesus that God revealed to Peter. And Cornelius believes and he receives the Holy Spirit. God orchestrated every one of those events. God worked through many different people and through the prayers of two different men to get Cornelius to a place of hearing and believing in the Lord Jesus. Francis Thompson is a 19th century British poet, follower of Jesus, struggled with poverty, poor health, addicted to opium. And he wrote a poem called Hound of Heaven, which that phrase has been adopted by many now. But in this poem, Jesus pursues Thompson with an unhurrying chase. And he hears the feet of Jesus beating after him. And in John Stott's biography, Stott refers to, to Thompson's poem. And according to Stott, he owes, Stott does, his faith in Jesus, not to his parents, not to his teachers, not even to his own decision to follow Christ, but he owes it to Jesus, who is the hound of heaven. This is what Stott writes. He says, My faith is due to Jesus Christ Himself, who pursued me relentlessly, even when I was running away from Him in order to go my own way. And if it were not for the gracious pursuit of the hound of heaven, I would today be on the scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, I hope you know it's not because you were smart enough to figure it out, are good enough that God smiled upon you. The only reason is because Jesus chased after you. And I'm sure He used many different people and many different experiences over a number of years to get you to that place where you finally heard and believed and trusted in Christ. God initiates and orchestrates, and He is the one who works to get us to the place of trusting God does reward those who seek Him. But please know that God is the cause and the rewarder of those who seek Him. See, I've said that Cornelius was not doing it enough, right? But I did not say that what Cornelius was doing was bad. In fact, God tells Cornelius in verse 4, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. See, Cornelius attending the synagogue His prayers, His giving was not in vain. God actually used those as a means to get Cornelius to the place where he was ready to receive Christ. I want this to be an encouragement to those of you who are here this morning and you're searching out Christianity. You find yourself coming to Christ Central Church and, and maybe you find yourself going to socials or to a city group, and there are aspects of Christianity that you like. You're not sure, though, about Jesus being central and that you need to believe in Him to, in order for your sins to be forgiven. You're not sure about that, but you, you're kind of seeking and you're questioning. God met Cornelius in the midst of his prayers and his service. Would you pray? Would you seek God? Would you ask God to show Himself to you while you're here on Sunday mornings? And I hope and and we pray that you find this to be a community where you can give and where you can receive. And in doing this, you might just find and see that the hound of heaven has been chasing after you for a while. Christian, would you always know the reason you believe and trust in Christ is because God sought after you and he found you. You didn't find God. (laughs) He was never lost. Never lost. He found us. The hound of heaven sought us out and he found us. Second point this morning is that in Peter, we see that God reconciles us to himself and to one another. Verse 9, Peter goes up on the housetop to pray. Again, (laughs) do you think prayer is important? Do you think God works through prayer? As he prays, Peter's hungry. Maybe some of you are hungry right now. And they're preparing something to eat. Peter goes into a trance, and he sees a sheet descending with every animal, every reptile, every bird. And God tells Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, no. No, God. Isn't <laughs> it funny? Peter and no often go together in Scripture. <laughs> right? But God uses Peter in remarkable ways. Peter says, no. I do not eat anything uncommon." or unclean, common or unclean. God spoke, what God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. And this happened three times. So the hard-headed Peter would listen. (laughs) God clarifies what this means to Peter so that when Peter comes to Cornelius, he tells him in verse 28, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. See, God was not just using a vision of food because Peter was hungry. God was communicating much more than just food, but food was involved. Food was involved. Peter was a Jewish apostle, and Jews had strict food laws, strict dietary regulations. And the main reason for these food laws and this diet was not just to be healthy, it was to create separation from the rest of the world. See, God was making the Jews a distinct people, a separated people. So they would not eat Gentile food. In fact, Jews would not eat at a Gentile's table. Jews were to be separate and segregated from Gentiles. And we don't quite get how big of a divide and segregation uh, there was between Jew and Gentile because we we were in first century uh, Israel. But many biblical scholars have said that The Iron Curtain in Russia, or Jim Crow, pale in comparison to the segregation of Jew and Gentile. Jews hated Gentiles. And now God is telling Peter, all people are clean. All people are welcome into the family of God. God is telling Peter, there should no longer be any separation and segregation. And this was huge. Bigger than the persecutor Saul being converted to Christianity, God is now declaring there is no longer Jew nor Gentile, but all are welcome into the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. He forgives any who believe in Him. This was a game changer. Many people thought that Peter's raising Dorcas to life in chapter 9, which we, we didn't look at in our series, but Peter raised Dorcas to life. Many people thought that the miracles and the signs of the apostles were amazing. But the game-changing moment is when God tells Peter that my kingdom is about reconciling the world to myself and reconciling one to another. That my kingdom is about bringing all the nations as one family under my care and my kingship. See, Verse 34, it's the watershed verse. That's why I had to include it. God shows no partiality, but God longs for all the nations to trust Him. Now, it is a part of our heart and our vision here at Christ Central to not be a segregated body of Christ. Some of you are like, you've been saying this every week. I hope you see that the book of Acts says it every week. We're not making this up. We desire here at our church to be a cross-cultural, multicultural community because God's heart is that. God's kingdom is multicultural. Now we've had a year in our country where racial tensions are flying very high. From Ferguson to Eric Garner to the Oklahoma fraternity boy making a chant on a bus to the noose found on Duke's campus to an officer shooting a man eight times in his back. And those are only stories of black and white racial tensions. Not even mentioning all the other forms of racial tension and racism that go across races. Our country is not post-racial. Not even close. Working at UNC Chapel Hill, some of you are still there at Carolina, a progressive academic institution, and I've observed this some at Duke as well. But I used to love, when I was ministering on, on UNC's campus, to sit in the pit which was the center of the campus, and I would observe and watch the students interacting, and I would pray for the students as I saw them. And it didn't take long for me to notice that all the international students sat together, all the black students congregated together, and then there were other little pockets throughout of the pit. It was natural for students to gather with students like them. It's natural for us to gather with people like us. Our world lives segregated because that's natural. Do you think the church lives this way? Do you think the church of Jesus has a problem with segregation? Yes, you better believe we do. Mahatma Gandhi shared in his autobiography that in his student days in England, he was impressed by the reading of the Gospels. And Gandhi almost converted to Christianity. And one Sunday he decided to visit a local pastor at a church to ask this pastor some of the questions. Gandhi said he got to the door asked to go and was asking about worship and somebody said would you go worship with your own people? And Gandhi would later say if Christians have caste differences I might as well remain a Hindu. Ron Sider in his article The Scandal of the evangelical conscience says that white evangelicals are the most likely religious group in the country to object to having black neighbors. Now catch this. The apostles were okay. They were okay with the segregation of Jew and Gentile because that was their culture. It was the way Jews were raised. It was their custom. It's what they saw. It's what their parents modeled to them. And even as God opened their eyes to the truth that God's kingdom is about one family made up of many nations, a multicultural family, the apostles have a hard time living into this truth because the history was long and the divide was deep. The history in our country cast a long shadow biases that have been passed down through our families, spoken or unspoken, things that have been modeled to us that we just naturally do because that's what feels the most normal. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel for the nations. The gospel breaks down dividing walls, various cultures and backgrounds brought into one family. See, Paul looking at this vision of the sheet, he had never seen anything like it clean and unclean animals together. That's why three times God had to show him this vision. He had never seen anything like it. He didn't understand it. It blew him away. You know the story, you've seen the movie 42. 42 for the number Jackie Robinson played baseball. That was his number. Based on the true story, he was the first African-American baseball player. And there's a scene in the movie where Robinson steps out onto the field with his team, and all the fans are yelling. They're yelling at him. They're telling him to get off the field. He doesn't deserve to be on the field. And Pee Wee Reese comes over to Robinson, puts his arm around him, and they just stand there. And the crowd silences, and they begin to look at Pee Wee Reese and Jackie Robinson standing together, black and white. They had never seen anything like that before. And the ump says, Hey, Reese, time to play ball. Let's play ball. And Pee Wee Reese looks at Jackie Robinson and he says, Well, Hey, Jackie, maybe tomorrow we'll all wear 42. That way they're not, they will not be able to tell us apart. One family. One family. It's When the church of the Lord Jesus lives like it's supposed to, made up of diversity, Latino, black, white, Asian, when we love one another and we serve one another and we give to one another and we worship together, the world looks at the church and sees a vision, a taste of God's kingdom. And the world should look at us and say, we've never seen anything like this. The world should be blown away at the way we love and live together. And we'll only live this way when we really believe that our identity is primarily not in being Asian or white or black or Latino, but our primary identity is first being a Christian. We must be first reconciled to God. Peter goes to Cornelius so he can first be reconciled to God through Jesus. Then Jew and Gentile can be reconciled. There was an ESPN 30 for 30 episode on the friendship between Mike Tyson and Tupac Shakur. If you don't know them, you should know them. Mike Tyson, one of the best and greatest boxers of all time. Tupac, one of the best rappers of all time. And in 1996... Justin's shaking his head. He's one of the best rappers of all time. Come on, man. Uh, In 1996, Tupac was. She's still alive. Y'all believe? I'm just kidding. Tupac's not still alive. That's like a myth. People think Tupac is. And he's here today. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Tupac was gunned down, most believe, in 1996. Uh, Actually, gunned down after watching in person a Mike Tyson fight. And Tyson and Tupac were supposed to meet up at a party afterwards, but he was killed. And in this episode, this 30 for 30 episode, episode, Maya Angelou was interviewed. Maya Angelou who just passed away. Well-known, respected author and poet, wrote on subjects of race and identity. And she tells about the the first time she met Tupac. She says it was on uh, the set of a film. She didn't know who Tupac was, and she hears two men yelling. And she hears a fight break out. One of these men, Tupac. She grabs a hold of him. He's full of anger. He's full of hate. He's yelling obscenities. And she looks Tupac in the eye and she says, when was the last time someone told you it was all for you? That we stood on slave blocks for you? That we were hosed down and beaten and lynched for you? All for you. Tough, hard, Tupac immediately broke down. Started to weep. And sob, and his whole posture changed from anger and fighting to broken. Listen, when there is extraordinary sacrifice and we understand the sacrifice, it changes our life. Things should be different. Our lives should be different. And trying to do more good will only last for a short period of time. Feeling guilty and trying to do more out of your guilt will last even shorter. But understanding what has been done for you, understanding what Jesus has done for you in His sacrifice, this liberating sacrifice, when it fills us with gratitude, it'll change us forever. If we understand what Christ has done, that the hound of heaven sought us out, reconciled us to Himself, so that we can be reconciled to one another, we'll be compelled to love and to forgive and to serve One family, made of many cultures, and the world will look and say, I've never seen anything like it. never seen anything like it. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would help us, Lord Jesus, to see that you have grabbed hold of us, that you are in pursuit of us. Some of us, maybe we're just feeling it. Some of us, you grabbed hold of us a long time ago. But you are the faithful one, the one who is running after us. Would we understand your great love towards us, your faithfulness? And would we see your heart for your church, your vision for your kingdom, the truth of what you long for, one family made up of many nations? Help us to love with the sacrificial love of Christ. Help us to go across dividing lines because that's what you did to us. Lord, we thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. amen on this meal they that-